All right, if we can find our seats, we'll get started here. We are working our way through the book of Colossians, such a great book. We're coming down to the last two sermons on this book, and uh, uh, what a great book it has been as we talk about uh, so many uh, important truths. I'm a little tired and sore this morning, not quite sure why. If you didn't know, I ran a race yesterday with some other people that were just as dumb as I am. Nine miles and like, what, 30 obstacles, something stupid. Um, I still haven't figured out why other than machoism. I don't know. Stupidity is the pride, the flesh, maybe. Um, Anyway, uh, we are going to do something a little bit different this morning. At least I've never tried this. Um, You ever see, and this is such a terrible illustration to start with, you ever see those vultures around a fresh roadkill? They kind of swing, or they circle around, you know, before they swoop down. You ever see that? You know what I'm talking about? So they circle around a whole bunch of times. We're going to look at this text. We're going we're gonna to be like vultures today. We're going to circle this text, and each time we're going to get a little bit closer, okay? So we're going to actually do it three times. Um, I want to make some general observations And then we're going to make some specific observations. And then we're going to look at a principal observation of this text. Um, So the first thing we want to do is make some general observations. The first circle is just going to be a quick circle. We're going to we're going to look through this text, and and before we do, I'm going to I'm going to pick it up. We're going to read it, um, but we're going to we're going to walk through some some general observations the Lord kind of laid on my heart as I studied this text. So if you would turn to Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 18, if you would, if you have your copy of God's Word, if you would stand with me as we read this. Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 18. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, Treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the powerful truths that it contains, that it is uh, alive for us today, and that the truths are as applicable today to our own lives as they were the day they were written down. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word freely, and you have declared that it will not disappear. And so, Father, we come before you with humility to approach this text, and we ask, Lord, would you teach us this morning? Show us your ways that we might honor you with our lives, that we might do it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So some general observations. First, I want to look at context, right? 
Uh, if you've never done any hermeneutics, um, the first rule of hermeneutics, which is just a fancy word for uh, uh, looking at a text and, and, and figuring out how to study it, um, the first rule is context is king, right? So the context, general observations. Paul has laid out for us in this book of Colossians, as we heard last week and in the last few weeks, uh, some incredible stuff, right? We, we learn about the supremacy of, the sufficiency of Christ to the Colossians in order that uh, the context would combat the philosophical nonsense that was coming in, right? That as Paul was looking at the church at Colossae, he, he recognized that in that church, this philosophical ideas, the, 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 the ideas of uh, 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 aestheticism, the ideas of all these uh, I, uh, legalism, all these things were creeping into the church and Paul says, no, Christ is supreme and sufficient. That's all you need. Jesus Christ. And so we turn to last week and, and, and what a great message we heard as we, we look at that in the light of these things, in the light of the sufficiency, the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus, in the light of that, we are called to a transformed life in Christ. Transformed life of Christ. And we're called to put off sinful behaviors. So we, we read this list of things that Paul says, in, in, since we have been raised with Christ, since we are His, since we are transformed, everyone who is in Christ Second uh, 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 Corinthians five seventeen. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone; the new has come. Put off these sinful behaviors. Put on the sanctified behaviors that we're called to. And fix your gaze upon Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews so eloquently said, uh, uh, um, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Look at Him. He's sufficient. And so Paul, in, in the light of that, he now transforms all those things we're dealing, if you notice, the putting on and the putting off, those are dealing with self. These are things I need to, to put off and put on. Now Paul changes the subject a little bit. And he says, now in regards to others, this is what your relationships should look like because you are transformed in Christ. That's the context. Some other things quickly I want to point out to you, and I think these are at least they were helpful for me as I walked through this passage. There are three couplets in this passage. Do you notice that? It says, wives, husbands, that's couplet number one. Children, Fathers, that's couplet number two. Slaves, masters, that is couplet number three. Okay, so you have the context, you have the, the basic thing, you have these couplets, and then you have some content here. And we're going <clears> to, <throat> don't think we're just skimming this, because we're going to circle back around and we're going to get a little bit closer. Paul addresses the household with some specific instructions. I want you to note five things in this text, and we're going to go through this quickly. <clears throat> Five things that as I looked at the passage I saw. Number one, the submissive, the one who is to be under authority, is always addressed first in the passage. 
These are just interesting to me, and, and maybe they have some, some real significance as we dive deeper into this. Second, the submissive, the one under authority, is always directed to Jesus Christ. They're always addressed first. They're always directed to Jesus. Third, the authority is reminded each and every time of their responsibility to care for those under them. So they're not directed to Jesus. That's not to say that that's not important, but they are directed to the responsibility that they are to be reminded of that they have to care for those under them. Number four, the servant slash slave, depending on your translation, is given the largest attention in this passage. And number five, and this is partially my opinion, but I think it's true, the temptation slash weakness that appears to be the greatest challenge for each of them is what's addressed in the passage. Children, what is our greatest struggle? To listen to our parents. So he says, children, obey your parents. <clears throat> and we're going to get into that. So those are some general observations. That's circle number one. As we swoop down a little bit closer to this passage, we're going to walk through verse by verse with some specific observations, digging a little bit deeper at these. There are six commands in this passage. Number one, <clears throat> wives. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Number one, command number one is wives, check your will. Wives, check your will will here's what paul is saying in this text in 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 basic context he says in a sense essentially in christ it is right and fitting for you to submit your will to your husband submit that's the fun word right submit that's a dirty little word in our culture that uh, declares uh, equality and uh, declares uh, authority and declares that I am to do what pleases me all the time. And so we hear this word and we struggle with it. And as a pastor, um, it's not always a fun subject to broach because we have all kinds of concepts and ideas. And, and I want us to understand <clears throat> a little bit here. Please note that this is a statement not of worth, not a, of, of value or supremacy in any way, shape, or form. So when it says, wives, submit to your husbands, that is not a declaration of worth, value, or superiority. In fact, Paul later on addresses the, I mean, earlier on he addresses the Galatians in, <clears throat> pardon me, need some water. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, he says, in Christ there is neither female or male. We are equal. Over and over again, this is a term that's used throughout the New Testament. And for you wives who may struggle with this, I want to encourage you with something. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is is God. What does that mean? It means the head of Christ is God. 
So if we approach this text and think that submission is something of a degradation or a place of inferiority, know this, that God and Christ are equal, yet Christ looked at the Father and He said, I will submit my will to your headship. Over and over again in the New Testament, when Jesus walked the earth, He would say things like, it is not my will that I have come to do, but my Father's will that I am here. When He was in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane, as He prayed and pleaded with the Father, if there is another way, would you do it? But not my will, but your will. And we can look at a passage and, and wives, if you struggle at all with this concept and thinking that I have to put myself under my husband, know this, that your Savior said, I will put myself under the Father. And what a great example he set. Jesus was okay with not being the head in the relationship with the Father. Wives, Can you model your relationship with your husband after the pattern that Jesus did with his father? That's a tough one. It's a word that can be abused, but it's consistently used throughout the New Testament. Colossians 3 here, uh, 1 Peter, uh, Titus over and over again. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul actually addressing the Ephesians. He says that you are all to submit to one another. And essentially it means to yield to one's loving leadership and hear wives to their own husbands. Ultimately it is saying, wives, trust your husbands just as Jesus did the Father and oh, by the way, He did it to death. That's a tough call. So Paul says, number one, specific instruction for household relationships. Wives, check your will. But then he goes on and he says, husbands, Check your heart. Husbands, check your heart. He says, uh, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, love your wives. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, you can, you can find an ex, uh, you know, the, Paul's in-depth look at this passage, uh, this idea, this concept where he talks about husbands and wives. In verse 22, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as, the, as to the Lord for The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then he jumps on this huge section about the responsibility of husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the the church to himself in splendor without spot wrinkle or any such thing that he uh, she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Husbands, that is a pinnacle to look up to. It says, husbands, love your wives. Over and over again in Scripture, when, when you have this topic of husbands and wives addressed, it's interesting because almost inevitably, uh, uh, Paul addressing the wives, he says to them, respect 
your husband. Respect your husband. They need respect. They crave respect. They, they live on the respect that they get. That's part of the submission under them. And then in, he transitions to uh, husbands and he says, love your wives. They don't need, and I'm not saying don't respect them, but it's much easier for you to respect your wife. Spend five minutes in her shoes and you'll see all the things she does and you will have respect for her. But what they need is your love. They need your love. And if you go through this, and we'll, we'll do this really quickly, and I, I'm not giving it justice, but I want to just do this real quick from Ephesians chapter 5. Five ways that we ought to be loving them according to this text. Number one, love her sacrificially. It says that in verse 25, Christ gave Himself up for her meaning the church. Love like that, not domineering, not demanding. Love her selflessly, not based on what you get in return. God does not love us, thankfully, based on our performance. We don't look at our wives, men, and say, uh, well, she didn't do this very well, so I'm going to withhold my love for her. No, no, no. It says clearly that Christ loved without holding anything back. In fact, it says that He loved while we were still enemies. It's not based on performance. Love selflessly. Love her sanctifyingly. I don't even know if that's a word, but it is now. How Christ loves the church. How does He love the church? He loves her in such a way that He washes her with the water of the Word. He purifies her. He presents her as holy and blameless and spotless. And, and we ought to love our wives in such a way that they are more and more holy each day. That's a tough call. But it's something we're commanded to do. So husbands, love should be effective. Number four, love her sweetly. With care as you would your own body. Nourish her, feed her emotionally, mentally. Cherish her care and comfort. Do not be harsh as we read in Colossians here. Uh, uh, but love her with warmth and affection. Cherish her, treasure her as Christ does the church. And fifth, love her sufficiently. Notice what it said at the end of that passage. It says that the two shall leave mother and father and become one flesh. Your wife should not need to go anywhere else for satisfaction and love because they find it in how you care for them. Husbands, check your heart. Paul says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We're going to come back to that last part again. Number three, children, check your actions. God desires you to obey your parents. I have met kids, young teenagers, who inevitably have one thing on their mind, and that is, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. And so they ask the question, what is God's will for my life? I'll tell you what God's will for your life is. Obey your parents. How can you say that? Because it says that in obeying your parents, this pleases the Lord. You want to know what your will for your life as a child is? Obey your parents. And how and when? How often? In everything. It's clear. Children, you want to know what pleases the Lord as you walk out what is holiness in the life of a child? You want to know what it means to grow in the admonition and the truth of the Lord? Obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. 
The Greek word uh, obey here literally means obey in what you hear. Obey in what you hear. Number four, fathers, check your words. Fathers, check your words. Paul essentially says here, do not be too hard on your children because they can break. They are called little people for a reason. And when we are constantly riding them and and being overly domineering to them, they will break. The idea is, do not irritate them. I find it interesting. Men, take note of this, please. Two times in this passage, Paul tells men to watch the use of their words. He says, husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. Husbands, fathers, uh, be careful not to exasperate, to irritate, to, to ruin, to break down your children. Use care with your words. Do not be harsh. Discourage. Our tone communicates so much as husbands and as fathers. Number five. Servants, slaves, and and I know we're going to sit here and we're going to say, well, I'm not a servant or a slave. I don't have any, so how does this apply to me? Guess what? Laborers, those who work in the workforce, you can take this text and apply it 100%. Servants slash laborers, check your motives. He's given a lot of attention to this. From 22 to 25 He says, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Here's what he says. Obey your masters, obey, you can insert the word boss, obey them as if they are the Lord. Check your motives. You know what? As Christians, as Christians, we should be the greatest workforce in the world. We should be the ones that bosses, that employers or employees are, are, are employers are looking for in the world to hire because we are to be trustworthy. We are to be loyal. We are to be diligent. Notice what this text. Imagine if our loyalty and effort at work would be consistent with our effort in being loyal and, and trustworthy to the Lord. If we served in our workplaces in the same way that we are to called to serve and live our lives for Christ, we would be hired and, and desired by every single boss. Notice what he says. He says, don't do it as eye-pleasers. It's not for eye service. We have to be trustworthy. We don't need the boss to see us do it. We should be desiring to do it because we are called as as Christians to be trustworthy. We don't need Him to be around. We should be diligent. Notice what He says. He says, uh, work heartily as to the Lord. And, And what does He say? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Oh, diligent. A Christian should never, never 
have the words uttered out of his mouth, that's not my job. Working heartily unto the Lord in everything that we do, whether it's cleaning a urinal, picking up trash, doing dishes, whatever it is, a Christian should never say that's not my job because we ought to be doing everything as though we're doing it unto the Lord. Would we ever say to the Lord, no, I'm not going to witness to that neighbor because it's not my job. We would never say that. We do sometimes communicate that in our actions, but we should never say that. We should never feel that way. We should always be whatever the Lord asks of me, I will do and I will go. And so Paul turns to these servants, and I can't imagine being a slave. Because oftentimes slaves have, have little to no worth or dignity. But in the household, Paul looks at it in this whole uh, transformation of, of, of becoming a, a Christian society in this Colossae where, where you had secular Greeks suddenly coming to know the Lord and, and you've got uh, re- dynamic relationships that now, how does this work? And Paul turns to these servants who have come to know the Lord and he says, just because they're your master, doesn't change that you are Christ and you ought to be serving them in such a way because maybe they're not belonging to Christ and they need to come to know Him. And I can tell you that there are probably many in this room today that do not work for Christian bosses. And if we go around and we act no different than the world, what message are we communicating? Your boss ought to know that you are Christian because you are serving in such a way that you are serving Christ. What a testimony and opportunity we would have if we did this to the world that screams, what's in it for me? Number six, masters, check your care. Treat those under you right because God is ultimately over you. How would you feel if God treated you the way you treated those under you? And so Paul turns to those who are Christian masters and he says, treat your slaves justly and fairly. Treat them right because you have someone who treats you right. So those are some specific observations. We want to circle around one more time to this passage. And as we approach it, I want to give you a general observation. An overarching principle is essential for us to understand as we look at this passage. Because this passage is ultimately dealing with, with I think, two things. Number one, relationships. And number two, authority. Relationships and authority. And here's what I want us to understand, a principal observation. The key to prosperous relationships is a correct understanding and practice of God's authority. Look at this text. It's saturated with God's authority. You have uh, uh, Paul saying in six different commands, wives submit, children obey, slaves obey, ma- uh, 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 husbands Care. Uh, Fathers, care. Masters, care. Why 
is this so important? Why is the family, as we look at today, and as Travis mentioned in announcements, that, that we have divorce rates as high in the Christian realm as we do in the secular realm? Why is it that we have a, a, a culture that, that screams, I'm going to be lazy by its actions? Why do we have all of this going wrong? Because people do not understand the concept of why authority is so important. And it's not from a dictatorial standpoint. Here's the reality. Here's why it's all breaking down. I'm going to give it to you in a simple sentence because we rage against authority. We cry out in our hearts that we are autonomous people and we declare with our words and our actions, I will not be ruled by anyone. Nobody has authority over me. We declare it by our actions. We declare it by our words. And if you need any further evidence, look to the toddler that's trying to tie his shoe. He will spend eight hours trying to tie his shoe on his own and he will not allow you to assist him because he wants to do it without your help. Because he will not be ruled by another. We're born with it because it is ultimately from the very essence of sin, which is rebellion against God's authority. This is the cry of sinful humanity. The family breaks down when God's purpose of authority is not respected or properly exercised. I'm going to give you three principles on authority. I have read and I shared with the deacons and elders this, this last week. There is a book that has shaped in so many ways my understanding of spiritual authority. It's a book called Spiritual Authority by Watchman Nee. I've probably read it a hundred times. It's an incredible book. I encourage you to read it. But I want to give you three principles when we talk about this text and the overarching general observation. Authority is extremely important to God is number one. Principle number one, authority is extremely important to God. Everything is rooted in God's authority. Flip one page over to First or Colossians, I'm sorry, chapter one. It starts in verse 15. It says, "He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, speaking of Jesus." And then he goes on, he says, "For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him." And then listen to this. Not only did He create all of it, it says, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Authority is very important to God. Sin is the violation of God's authority. You look at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, where we have sin entering into the world. What was it? Satan's temptation. Eat this and you will be like God. What was Satan's fall? He said, I will be like the Most High. Saul, when he sinned and he, and he lost his throne, essentially, when God uh, separated himself from Saul, it says that Saul went to, to face the Amalekites and he was given the command, wipe them all out, and Saul saves the best. And he comes back with this great spiritual answer. He says, I kept it for you, God. I kept it as a sacrifice. And Samuel comes to him and he says in this incredible verse, he says, Understand this, Saul. It is not your sacrifices that I desire. It is better to obey. God has always cared about obedience. He's cared about it. You know why? Because our sin is a constant communication to God that I will not be ruled by you. 
and I will be under my own authority. It's a constant reminder of rebellion which God hates. Number two, all authority comes from God. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, there is no authority that has been given to you except that which has been established by God. John chapter 19, verse 11, Pilate standing before Jesus says, why won't you answer me? Don't you know that I have authority to set you free? And Jesus says without flinching, he says, you have no authority except that which has been given to you by God. Know this, that to rebel against any authority is to rebel against God. You say, well, what about those ungodly authorities? What about the instructions and the commands that we are given? Like, for example, the apostles came before the Sanhedrin. They said, don't preach anymore into Jesus, uh, the name of Jesus. And here's an important distinction. There's a great quote I read from that book that I encourage you with understanding and chew on it for a little while. Submission is a matter of attitude. Obedience is a matter of action. God calls us to submit to authority. And sometimes there are authorities that give us instructions contrary to God. We can still be submissive to them and reject a command that is ungodly. That's a tough one because we look at sometimes rulers that have been placed in high places and we say, I can't submit to them. Yes, you can. God didn't suddenly close his eyes and say, oh, I didn't know he became president. No, He knows all things. He is sovereign. And know this, brothers and sisters, we don't have time to unpack this, but God always quickly and severely disciplines those who rebel against His delegated authority. I can give you countless example after countless example in Scripture. And guess what? In Colossians chapter 3, verse 25, He says the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And principle number three, to be an authority, you must be under authority. All right, so what do we do with all this? How do we pack this all in and wrap it into a nice bow and say, okay, I get the application? In a book about the sufficiency, the supremacy, the preeminence about Christ, the question first and foremost needs to be, Have you submitted yourself to Him? The Gospel is clear that in Jesus is the only way, that there is no other option, that there is no other name under heaven and earth that has been declared that shall give salvation. And it is through a submission to saying that, you know, there are, and I'm going to be screamed out for heresy here, there are two ways to heaven. Did you know that? One is perfect obedience to every single law that God has declared and proclaimed. And by the way, I've never met anybody who has done that. Or looking to Jesus who came, was uh, uh, born and, and lived a life perfect and holy that obeyed to completion every act of the, the Word of God. And through that obedience, went and died on a cross and offers His perfection as an atonement and says, I will offer this to all who would believe. But it takes a submitting 
of my will that says I will not rule myself, but I am in desperate need of one who has died for me and paid a penalty that I can never pay. Have you submitted to Christ? And second, as we look at the specifics of this passage, what does authority look like in your home and at work? Are you casting a shadow on the principle of God's authority at home or at work by your actions, your words, your thoughts? Are there relationship problems at home or at work? I can promise you if you have them, it is because you are not following God's principle of authority. I can promise you. If we worked for our boss as though we were serving the Lord, there would be a heck of a lot less problems, wouldn't there? If we looked at our wives' husbands and realized that we were to love them as Christ loved them, they would not feel neglected or not cared for. Wives, if we would look at our husbands and say, I respect you, I trust you, I'm, I'm praying to the Lord that He will guide and direct you. And instead of subverting authority and saying, you know what, you're not spiritually leading us, I will do it. I can promise you if you do that, it will never work. Your husbands will reject it because you have subverted what God designed and you have declared that what God designed is not good enough. Here's what I want us to do. Response. As Stephen comes up, get out a piece of paper or pen. Make a list of your relationships. Whether it's home, whether it's work. And write down some names. And ask yourself the question, how is my relationship with that individual? Is my responsibility submission or care? And how am I doing that? As a father, am I checking my words to make sure I communicate love and admonition to my children that they would grow up to seek after the Lord? Am I modeling for them the picture that God the Father has for me? And I'd ask you this question, do you need to repent, make things right? Do you need to approach them? And here's what I want you to do, because here's what I want from HGC as we continue to walk forward. I don't want this church to be a place where we walk in, we hear words, whether they're good or not, and, and, and then leave and be completely unchanged. Here's what I want you to do before you leave this building, is to find somebody in this room and say, will you hold me accountable to this? Will you challenge me and ask me the hard questions that says, were you loving to your wife this week? Can we do that? Can we make Christianity real in our lives and not just be a place where we come in and hear sweet, eloquent words from the pastor? Because I'm sure that's what you think every Sunday when you leave. Can we make it something that the Lord has transformed me and I want to do something about this, that as I read this passage and I say, wives, submit to your husbands. Yeah, I'm failing at this. And you know what I loved about last week? One of the things that Nathaniel said that, that I would remind you of and encourage you in, that you will fail this week. You will fail today in doing these things. But the righteous man, he gets back up. 
And that's what we're called to, not to sit in shame and wallow in self-pity because we are not walking on a 24-7 basis the way the Lord has called us, but to look at this and say, Lord, I am in need of You and I need Your grace and I am dependent on that. Would You help me to father my children in a way that communicates love? Father, would You help me in a way to communicate to my boss that they are as precious to me as a Savior. Not that they are, but that they represent what I am to treat them like. Can we do that? Can we make this real? Can we take this Scripture and can we apply general principle that God cares about our relationships and when relationships don't follow His principles of authority, they break down? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You that You are a loving, merciful Father. And Father, I think of us as Your children. Father, if there is anyone in here today that has not submitted themselves to You as their Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would realize that they will never get anywhere in this life by declaring, I will rule myself, because they are terrible rulers. We will never be like God because You have declared that You are one. So Lord, I pray that we would realize today that we need to submit our hearts to You. And Father, for the relationships that have broken down in this family, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would remind us, that you would help us to be faithful, to find people who will hold us accountability to the truths that we seek to apply. That we cannot do this on our own. That's why we gather as a fellowship of believers. That we do not walk this walk of faith alone. We have the Holy Spirit who guides and directs us. And we have the love of the saints who come alongside. Father, we pray all these things for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.